Hello, and welcome to the Ambassadors Forum here on True Talk 800 KPDQ here in the great, beautiful, today overcast Northwest. We at the Ambassadors Forum, we want to thank True Talk 800 KPDQ for hosting us every Saturday morning. They have given us this platform, this opportunity, and we tremendously appreciate it. Who are the Ambassadors Forum? We are lay people with day jobs who do apologetics in our free time to give the church tools to help the church explain God to the world. In apologetics, we want to be direct and take on all of the hard challenges. We at the Ambassadors Forum, we like to present God as he is, as he's been revealed in the Old Testament, the New Testament, which means we don't run away from hard questions. When God presents something about himself and people challenge that, we want to not modify it. We don't want to change it. We don't want to make it more palatable. We want to just put it out there and let people deal with it. Today is about one of those hard questions. My name is Charles Jackson. Your normal radio host, Roy Swart, is down for the count this week, and I am filling in. I get to be a stunt double. They only call me up when the dangerous tasks are needed, and they want to keep the star, preserve the star, make sure he doesn't get hurt. To talk about the hard questions, first, I want to ground ourselves in the character of God. So today we read from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. As you listen to this, please think of the two sides of God's character that he presents. Two, not opposite sides, but two complementary sides. This is from Exodus 34, 6 and 7, which says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of people, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. We will come back to this very foundational verse at the end. Continuing, in presenting the God of the Bible to folks, as he is, there are hurdles that we often have to overcome. For example, the Trinity. How could God be three? How could God be one? How could God be three in one? It's perplexing, but it doesn't keep many people away from Christianity. So I'll call that a low hurdle. It's an easy one to jump over. There are other hurdles that are bigger. I'll say a medium-sized hurdle, and this is a newer one, is that our modern Western culture's definition of sexual ethics and their practice of sexual ethics. We believe that's the way to do it. We believe that's the kind, generous, just way to do it. Bible would say differently. New Testament sexual ethics are different than what is typically accepted and celebrated now. So for many people coming to faith, that's a higher hurdle, at least in the modern West. Maybe not in Southeast Asia, maybe not in South America, maybe not in Mongolia, but it is here. It's a medium-sized hurdle. Today, we're going to talk about a higher hurdle. The high hurdle is this. If God is loving, which we say he is, why does he kill very large groups of people in the Old Testament? Why does he wipe out the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Midianites, Sodom, Gomorrah? Why does he destroy them if he's loving? And the non-Christian world sees this as two irreconcilable claims. We say God is love, like in 1 John 4, and whoever abides in love abides in God. We say that husbands should love your wives as Christ loved the church. He's an example of love. That's from Ephesians 5. We say that we only love because God first loved us. That's also in 1 John 4. So as Christians, we often talk about love because our source of revelation from God says he is love. Yet, here's the, what many people consider irreconcilable. In Genesis 6 to 9, God kills everybody in a big flood. In Genesis 18 to 19, God kills everybody in Sodom and Gomorrah, except for Abraham's family. 
In Exodus, God kills Egypt's firstborn and their army. In Exodus 32, he tells the Levites to kill 3,000 Hebrews. In Numbers 25 and 31, he sends plagues to the Midianite people. In Numbers 31, he then kills the Midianite men, women, and the boys, sparing the girls. In Joshua and Deuteronomy, God kills the Canaanites. This is a high hurdle to overcome, again, because it sounds like a discrepancy between a statement of God's character that he's loving and a statement about his actions that he's killing large groups of people. We wouldn't do that. That would be cruel. So to us, it sounds irreconcilable. A quote that sums this up when folks react to this and they disagree with it. There's an atheist writer named Josh Kelly who challenges this Christian view when he says, in his words, Christians keep saying the God of the New Testament is completely different than the God of the Old. But if you knew a man who was a serial murderer, who committed genocide, who demanded child sacrifice, and who crushed entire cities, would you suddenly start trusting him when he suggests crucifying his own son to make up for it? It's why some folks then conclude, I can't imagine why a loving God would unmercifully kill whole groups of people for no reason. It's just excessive. It's just wrong. A kind person wouldn't do that. Would you do that? And I'll say that sometimes churches don't confront these hard chapters. If we're preaching through the Bible, sometimes our churches will skip this. We'd rather just talk about God's love. We'd rather leave in the sweet, gentle Jesus instead of presenting this God of justice. God's killing of the Canaanites. When you were in fifth grade Sunday school, your teacher may not have covered that. Christian kids, they might be discipled by their parents. They might have devotions every night. But if their mom and dad hide all of the Old Testament violence from them and never tell them about it and never share it with them. And then these kids grow up and they meet a skeptic who challenges them with something like, well, I can't believe in the Bible because in the Old Testament, God kills a lot of people, even children. And I can't believe in a God who would kill children. And this can be jarring for folks if they've never considered it, if they've never pondered it. It can cause young church kids to ask, why did my church hide this from me? Why didn't my parents mention it? What else are they trying to hide? Maybe my skeptical coworker is right. I wouldn't kill children. I wouldn't wipe out whole groups of people. And because this potential hurdle, this high hurdle was never confronted, and then these young churchgoers, they hear this, they believe it, they stop believing the Bible, they stop believing in Christianity, and they stop coming to church. We at the Ambassadors Forum believed, and we've learned that a better way to deal with hard truth is to confront it, explore it, and teach it. My wife and I learned a long time ago that we want our children, we want them to hear all the best challenges to biblical Christianity. We want them to hear them from our lips before they hear it from the lips of a skeptic or somebody who's not a Christian. So by teaching our kids that God, yes, in the Old Testament, he does indeed kill large groups of people. And then we explain the reasons for why God does this. It gives them a chance to hear it from a Christian perspective. Now our kids, if we do this, they've been exposed to these passages that many people find morally difficult, and it works a little bit like an inoculation. They've had time to ponder it under the discipleship of their Christian parents and a Christian church. And they grow because of it, because they learn how God's forgiveness and his justice go hand in hand. In 2 Timothy 3, a famous verse, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I draw your attention to a few of the words in there. All scripture. That includes the passages about God killing many people. All scripture is God-breathed. It's from him. He writes it. He authors it. He gives it to us. He puts the content in there. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. We can get something from this. It's not something we should ignore. 
It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the sermon of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If we don't confront the tough passages, then we're not going to be fully equipped. We'll be half equipped, partially equipped, and we'll have holes in our armor. The Bible contains the full counsel of God. If we ignore the full counsel, well, if God put it in there, that seems awful hard to justify. So today we're going to do it. Let's confront a tough passage, a passage with lots of killing, the kind that some non-Christians would reject. Let's explore it with eyes wide open. And I didn't choose an easy one. This comes from Numbers 31, where God kills the Midianites. The whole text is very long. I'm not going to read it here because it does take too long. You're welcome to look it up yourself. Please do. Please take your Bible on your phone or an actual physical Bible and open to Numbers 31. After you've read it, here are the key parts that I summarized. These are the parts that are historical, the most significant events in this narrative, and also the most morally difficult parts right here. The Lord said to Moses, take vengeance on the Midianites. So they, Moses and the Midianites, fought against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every man. The Israelites captured the Midianite women and the children and took all the Midianite herds, flocks, and goods as plunder. They burned all the towns where the Midianites had settled as well as their camps. Moses was angry with all the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds who returned from the battle. Have you allowed all the women to live? Moses asks. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident, so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Moses then says, so now kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man, but save for yourselves every girl who has never slept with a man. If you read this for the first time, what would you think? Here's what many think and how many would respond. They'd have questions. They'd have challenges to that. They would say things like a good God would show mercy and forgiveness and not kill everybody, all the Midianites. Somebody might say, why did God do that without first justifying and listing all the evil things the Midianites did? Someone might say they can't possibly all deserve death. A good God wouldn't kill the innocent Midianites along with the guilty Midianites. Folks might point out it's immoral to kill children. And then folks might conclude, I can't believe in a genocidal God. A good God wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. I'm a good person. My friends are good people. They wouldn't do that. I don't think you would do that, young Christian. Now, before answering these questions, I want to go off on a fairly brief tangent. There are three temptations we face when we answer, when hearing these questions. The first temptation we face is sometimes Christian pastors and writers, they come up with other ways to explain these difficult passages like Numbers 31. So they bend the rules of Christian hermeneutics. An example of this would be a gentleman who's a pastor in Minnesota. His name is Greg Boyd. He writes a book in his view. He would say that in the Old Testament, when Moses and the Jewish leaders tell the Jewish soldiers to kill other groups of people, that's not actually God talking because he's committed to the idea that God is a pacifist. He would say that that's not God talking. That's the Moses and the Jewish leaders talking. And then they are attributing that to God. That's Moses being impatient and vengeful and hateful and murderous. Not God. Another gentleman who's a pastor in St. Louis, his name is Brian Zahn. He would say something like, I interpret the Bible through the lens of Jesus, kind and gentle Jesus. And I reject whatever doesn't mirror Jesus's character in the Bible. So if this is in the Old Testament, it says God kills lots of people. He would say, well, Jesus wouldn't do that. So that can't be true. That can't be from God. That must be something that the Jewish people had done instead of God. So we bend these hermeneutics. We can't do that. As Christians, we can't do that. We've been given a hermeneutic. A hermeneutic meaning a way to look at the scripture, a way to read the scripture, a paradigm, a lens. In Matthew 5, Jesus says he didn't abolish the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it, not abolish it. He said it would not disappear. 
He said the Old Testament is authoritative, even down to its smallest little letter, the smallest iota, the smallest apostrophe, and it doesn't disappear. And We ought not to rearrange it, and those who do will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Another temptation we face when we hear about God killing the Midianites is to feel shame. We may wish God didn't do this. We want to skip to something else. We sometimes will say, well, I don't want to confront that. So here, just read this, these gospel verses about Jesus. Just skip to Jesus. Skip this hard stuff because we're Christians. Christ is the root of everything we do. We don't need to talk about the Old Testament stuff because that's, ah, that's the Old Testament. It's not what we're dealing with now. But God put these verses in the Bible for a reason. If we cut out the parts of the Bible we don't like, then we miss the full counsel of God. We don't know his whole character. Another temptation we might face when hearing this is to get calloused and flippant and not really listen to the moral dilemma that our non-Christian friend is going through when he or she reads the Old Testament. If somebody asks you, why did God kill kids? We should show some empathy. On the empathetic answer would be something like, when someone else says, why does God kill children? We shouldn't say, well, God is sovereign. So it's true that God is sovereign. He's always sovereign and he always has reasons for what he does. But that's not always the best explanation in the moment if we say it that way, because we can't come up with a good answer. We won't persuade anybody if we answer this way, if we dismiss their concerns. When we say God is sovereign and they're dealing with this emotionally, we're telling them that their compassion, their emotion is not real. And we're telling them it's misplaced. Instead, we should listen. We should understand that often the person doesn't like masculine because this person desires mercy and compassion. We ought to honor that. But now back to the topic. How do we answer these questions? Again, God killed the Midianites after the Hebrew soldiers killed only the men. Moses told them to kill the women and the boys, even down to young ages, and then keep, spare the girls. We are deliberately working through a hard passage, and now we face the hard challenges. How would you respond to some of these challenges? When I was preparing this, I, w- I prepared answers the wrong way until my friend Carrie Denker said something that made me realize, oh, I need to rearrange this. I need to redo this. When first researching these topics and trying to answer these questions, I thought of it more as like chess or checkers. I thought of them as moves and counter moves. If somebody says a good God would forgive, not kill, I would come up with a canned, easy to memorize response to counter that with. But the more I thought about this, that's not the way we do things. That's not the way we dialogue. That's not the way we talk in real life. Real life is not a debate where we have statements and counter statements, moves and counter moves. This is not a Olympic fencing match. This is not a wrestling match. You're getting to know somebody and you're engaging with them. And so a better way than doing these moves and counter moves is to ask questions to investigate the person's background, where he or she is coming from. Questions like, okay, how long have you felt this way about the Old Testament? Have you read the Old Testament? Did you always feel this way? Or is this a position that you migrated to? What made you come to that conclusion? Who have you read? Who has given you thoughts about this topic? Then, after sincerely finding out where the person's coming from, we can ask questions that cause them to wonder whether they're looking at the issue correctly. Destabilizing questions. My following questions after finding out why somebody believes the way they do and how they came to this conclusion would be to ask questions, well, questions that we'll address here in a second as we go question by question. So the first challenge to Numbers 31, somebody would say, it doesn't say in there, in Numbers 31, what the Midianites did that was so wrong. Therefore, it's hard to believe it was justified to kill them. This assumes a few things. It assumes that God needs to justify to me, the reader right here, that these Midianite people were really, really super uber bad, or I won't believe that God was justified in killing them. How should we respond? After, again, asking background questions, I might ask some destabilizing questions and ask them, well, have you read all the chapters that talk about the Midianites' history, not just this one in the end of Numbers? 
I might also ask the person, would you like to refind all the other chapters that talk about the Midianites and their sins and what they did? Or would you like me to email them to you? I'm happy to find it. Eventually, after asking these kind of questions, I might offer them some sort of response like this. Sometimes God clearly lays out a people's sins in the chapter where he judges them. Sometimes it's in other chapters. Sometimes it's in other books. But in the end, Romans 2, written by Paul in the New Testament, talks a lot about this. It says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. And so whether people's sins are stated or not stated, God is operating off of their individual sins when he judges them. Romans 2 includes me in that. Even though I'm a Christian, I'm not any better than the Midianites in and of myself and the others who deserve judgment. But in Jesus, I'm rescued from that judgment. Next challenge. If someone reads Numbers 31, someone might say, a good God would forgive, not kill. Humans don't deserve death as a punishment, which a lot of people believe. It's a position of compassion. It might be the wrong kind of compassion, but it is a position of compassion. If somebody presents this challenge, I would ask a few destabilizing questions to get them to challenge their assumptions. One of the questions I might ask is, okay, if God forgives all evil automatically, if every evil act, every sinful act, every harmful act is automatically forgiven and is never dealt with, then does justice actually exist? Or is it just a concept? If justice is never administered, if wrong acts don't ever merit punishment and it's never administered, does justice exist? I might also ask, if all sin is forgiven automatically, then does evil have consequences? If it doesn't have consequences, what is God doing? Is he just? Is he good? Also, if all sin is automatically forgiven, automatically just wiped away, do our actions matter? The judge never punishes anyone. If he never punishes any crime breaker, any evildoer, would that judge be good? Would he be protecting victims? Would he be protecting society? And then leave them with this. God is a loving father, but he's also a just judge. A judge who let every criminal off would be an immoral judge who hated victims and loved criminals. In Christianity, God forgives those who ask for it, and he also applies consequences, sometimes harsh consequences, to those who are never sorry for their harmful sin. And then I might take the person back to the verse we started with today from Exodus 34. Behold, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love, yet he does not let the wicked go unpunished. Another challenge. If I was a non-believer and I read Numbers 13, one of the things I might challenge the Christian with is, when you kill everybody, you're also killing the innocent. In Germany, after World War II, we have the Nuremberg trials, where we go on trial and we present evidence to decide, or we analyze evidence to, and witness testimony to decide which the German leaders were bad and ordered mass killings, and which ones didn't, and we're just following orders. We're trying to separate the innocent from the guilty. If somebody says that, I would say, you know what? A long time ago, a guy named Abraham made the same challenge to God. Can I read you what happened? And then I would take them to Genesis 18. Because this question has been asked. It was asked by Abraham very early in the Bible. God had told Abraham, I'm going to judge and punish the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because their wickedness is very great. Abraham's nephew Lot and his family were living in the city. Abraham wanted his nephew spared. So Abraham pleaded with God. He had what some people call the mercy dialogue. And Abraham said, God, okay, you're going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, but what if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people? 
Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And many of you know what happens next. God says, I will not judge the city if, if there are 50 righteous people. So then Abraham bargains God down. He says, what if there's only 40? Will you judge the city if there's 40? God says, no, I won't. What if there are 30? What if there are 20? What if there are 10? And when God tells Abraham, I won't judge the city if there are 10 righteous people, Abraham is content. He's satisfied. He walks away from the conversation because he believes he's gotten Sodom and Gomorrah off the hook. He believes, well, then there must be a few innocent people there, a few righteous people there. So God won't destroy it. But God destroys it because there were no righteous people there. God destroys a city because everybody there deserved his justice. Notice that this is the second large killing in the Bible after the flood. And it's also the very first one that is that targets a group, a region, an area. Is this a pattern for all the ones afterwards? I also balance this with Genesis 15, where God is talking to Abraham about the Amorites. And he says that the Amorites are building sins against them. They're building sins against them. And God won't judge them until their sins have reached a certain point to merit judgment. It's like filling a gas tank, sort of. It comes from Genesis 15. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors and be peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. And here's the key. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God didn't judge them until their sins had reached a certain level of wickedness. I hate to make it quantitative, but that's the way this verse seems to do it. When God judges folks, he doesn't punish the innocent with the guilty. That does not seem to be the pattern based on Genesis 18 and 15. Another challenge, it's never justified to kill kids, especially for their parents' sins. A lot of folks assume children are innocent and can't possibly deserve death. Assumes that these children would reform or many of them would reform if left to live. So, how would you respond to this one? This is very tough. should be very tough. God doesn't want us to kill children, but yet in certain times in the Old Testament, he did tell the Hebrew soldiers to do that. If somebody asks this question, presents this challenge, I might ask them, is God just if we all get different lengths of life? Because we do. Some live for 95 years. Some folks live for 95 days. If God made us, does he have ownership rights over us? I might say the Midianite adults are guilty of Midianite national sins, but could their kids be guilty of other sins? Does God know what these Midianite children would grow up to do and what they grow up to be? The answer is he does. I would also say that God's justice is administered in this life and the next. There are two venues of justice administration. We want to see all of them now in this life, but that's not necessarily how God does it. He administers them here, but largely in the next life. There are blessings and punishments that we don't see yet. If somebody says God shouldn't kill children, I might say, well, it's right to protect the life of children, yes. Jesus said those who harm children would be better off drowned with a giant rock tied to their neck. But I sometimes see kids participating in their parents' sin. I can see how, if left to themselves, these Midianite kids would repeat Midian's evil. And I could see them killing the Israelites in vengeance. Also, God made everybody. He has creator rights. He can take any of us at any time he wants, and we're not guaranteed a long life. In conclusion... When talking about God's justice, I do go to Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. We could come up with points, counterpoints. We could memorize the entire history of the Old Testament to show that in every case, God was justified in killing a group of people because they were really bad, and they did this, this, and this. 
another way to do it, though, and this is the way I think we should do it, is to read a passage of the Bible, know God's character, and be able to explain God's character in every morally difficult circumstance in the Old Testament. So I draw us again back to Exodus 34, which says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of people and forgiving lots of wickedness, rebellion, sin. But yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. God is loving and he's just. He's forgiving and he punishes sin. They are two sides of the same coin and that one can't exist without the other. If God never judges sin, he's not really just. If he always judges sin, always, and never gives us an out, never gives us any mercy, well, then he's not forgiving. But God does both. And he knows the balance. We don't. We seek perfect justice in our courts. We do this through evidence, witnesses, corroborating witnesses. We allow advocates cross-examination. We work to achieve as perfect knowledge as possible before administering a judgment on somebody. But God already has perfect and accurate knowledge of not just our actions, but also our inner thoughts and our lives, the things that go on inside our head. When he judges, he's doing it with perfect knowledge, and it's a righteous judgment because he's a perfect judge. My name is Charles Jackson. This has been the Ambassadors Forum on True Talk 800 KPTQ.